0: Did you do kay. it? On the push. I, the I am here with you, Scott. And, <laughs> and no, you're not. You're way I, over there. I know. I'm
1: far away. I'm. I am. Uh, I'm on the coast, living the IRE life, man.
0: Have we started the show? No. We could have.
1: We could have. Hey, welcome to the Lanky Guys. I'm this, Peter Buffett.
0: And I'm Scott Powell, and this is the Word on the Hill.
1: Yeah, with the lanky guys. I always kind of forget how to say that right.
0: It's weird. We have kind of two titles, and so it's confusing.
1: It is confusing. It is. The title is
0: the word on the hill, and we happen to be the lanky guys.
1: Yes, and I'm really thankful that we um are we got to word and we're on the hill.
0: Well, you're not on the hill. You're in the swamp. Well, where are you? I'm. Well, I'm in a valley.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In a garage in a valley. I'm I'm in in a a garage house in
0: in the in the swamp. Yeah. Well, we all do what we can do. <laughs> yeah, so be it. <laughs> hey there, Peter is holding up an Ewok to the screen.
1: <laughs> I just uh, see what happens is that I am in Florida and I am a managed. Sorry, you're get, in Florida. We need to talk um, about that. Literally, like four hours in the Magical Kingdom. I arrived at 10 p.m. and um, and my friend and and the Magical Kingdom stays open to 2 a.m. and so I literally got four hours in uh, Disney
0: World. And you bought an Ewok with that time.
1: <laughs> no, actually, they just gave me an Ewok. And the Magic I, Kingdom
0: just gave you an Ewok?
1: I, I'll say there, there's again.
0: more to this story than that. You, did you steal it? Did I steal you the Ewok? To to I didn't steal an Ewok, that's dude. No, they got it for me as a gift. Oh, your friends did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying Disney World just gave it to you.
1: <laughs> dude, can you imagine going in there like, they're like, you know what, we really like you. We want to give you an Ewok. And you're like, dude, that's awesome. I love, I love Mickey.
0: That would be cool. Would it? Yeah. That would be cool. Those would be the days. So what are you doing in Florida? Father, tell us about this. Dude, um, out, I am –
1: Well, this is the thing is that I am like uh, – I had some friends and they were going out to Florida and mm. I am like terrified of deep water. And we're back. So sorry. What?
0: I said we're back.
1: We're back. Oh, this is the thing is that there's technical difficulties – um, with the podcast, we're so we're sorry because I am on the like the sandy beaches with my ties and um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in a garage a, with a dirty beer.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All that is actually true. It it really it really is, and uh, I did something terrible right before we started podcasting. You sure did. Um, I'm glad you're owning I said, up to it i know i have to own this and i said man i said scott man we've figured this out i was like we got like no technical. why is it so easy now like the, there's like no technical difficulties at all
0: and what did i say father you said you're just jinxed it yep and guess what happened three minutes later down the internet in 55 went. seconds at least yeah, the internet so i have no
1: internet now florida has yeah, no so internet we had anymore. to do <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty rough on the Floridians.
0: <laughs> so where are you, Catalina island? No, that's in California. Where are you again? Caledonia. I Calisania. am.
1: No, I'm at a Captiva, Captiva Island. Captiva, I know it was sea. Yep, yep. Which is funny because it sounds like captive. Like, I think they must have put captives
0: <laughs> on this island. Maybe. Yeah, I wonder if it has a weird sordid history. If If all of you listeners yeah, know I, about the sordid history of Captiva Island, tell us about it.
1: We would love to hear about all of all it. All of it, every bit. All.
0: But all. Speaking of, it. of our listeners, we have a shout out. I we have to give a shout out to Lauren from Australia, who um whoop, whoop. maybe I potentially is our listener from the furthest distance away. I know we have somebody from the Russian Federation that we've talked to, but Lauren maybe yep. the furthest away, and she confirmed that in fact the duckbill platypus was put on this earth purely for our amusement. So. Dr. Lauren, thank you for that. <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah, uh, good thing. man. She's got my back. There, there's nothing like it. Cool. Well, we should talk about the things that we're here to talk about, which is namely the mass and the readings therein.
1: And and we got uh, Corpus Christi this week. Corpus Christi. Do we
0: do we do a procession for Corpus Christi? Do do some people do a procession? You know,
1: you, procession a lot of people do a procession for corpus christi and and uh and we should because this is um uh, the responsibility of saint thomas aquinas and being at St. Thomas Aquinas, I mean, they like commissioned him to put all this stuff together for um, hymns to be able to be sung, a theology to be able to be put forward, and like the, the procession to be able to be done around the church or around the neighborhood or, or around the universe, depending on how fast you can move.
0: <laughs> Pretty <laughs>
1: fast. Well, that I mean, like, I mean, if you're Superman, you could do one serious Eucharistic procession.
0: Yeah, but nobody could really follow you or see you.
1: You just a good go really point.
0: fast and that would be that. But I guess God would be glorified. But I mean, I guess he...
1: Yeah, God would be glorified. Yeah, um, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, I will actually not be there because I will be... We will be getting our first uh, session of the summer at Camp Voitiwa, the program that my wife and I run up in the mountains, where we teach young people about the Lord through the context of adventure. So I'm very excited about starting that. We have college students showing up in town today from all over the country who are going to be serving with us and ministering to these young kids and taking them up big mountains and rock climbing with them. It's going to be great. And we are going to have a little procession, I think.
1: Oh, dude, that'll be awesome. Um, Now, I have to tell you that one of my favorite moments in life, this is transitioning into our readings. One of my favorite moments in life was being in the Holy Land and um driving across uh in a boat uh the sea of galilee into capernaum where um where typically the um the uh, uh John 6 would be understood to have been proclaimed yeah. we don't have John 6 in our readings nope. today but um <laughs> it's just one of my favorite moments is, is just ending up on the feast of Corpus Christi in the place where Jesus had given like the 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 dialogue at the great white synagogue in Capernaum outside of Peter's house and like dude it I, I like I literally sat in mass and I just like whacked. oh it was I on just Corpus Christi not, that you were there it was it was on Holy Corpus Christi cow, that, that I was nuts. there
0: well, you know, it's interesting. Our yeah, reading this week from so Luke cool. is, though, the, it doesn't say this in the reading, but if you read the context, they're in a place called Bethsaida, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is not very far from Capernaum, right? It's just down the coast on the Galilee, isn't it?
1: Exactly. It's, it's not very far at all. So
0: it's probably, if you're mapping out sort of how Jesus is doing this chronologically, it's that these, these two events probably aren't very far apart. The the reading this week, the gospel reading, is when he multiplies the loaves and fishes, which is probably pretty close in proximity to the John 6 proclamation of, you know, eating my blood, my body, and drinking my blood, which is cool. Because that's how Jesus rolls. What?
1: Yeah. That's how Jesus rolls. That is how he rolls. um, You. You know, he'll teach you about something, and then he's going to show you something. Or he shows you something, and then he teaches you about it. I mean, it's one of those two.
0: That's really cool. Well, yeah that's that traditionally it's always been understood that Jesus the way he works is through words and works, his words explain his works, and his works give give life to his words it's a it's kind of a neat way to look at the gospels word up word and works up <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's oh. if you guys are well never mind i'm having a i'm having a tiny bit of a hard time hearing Father Peter. you guys should be able to hear both of us fine. But I don't know how well we can hear each other. So um sorry if we have yeah, pauses it, in between our is conversation.
1: That, is that better, me, having you hear me here that way? Yeah, it's fine. It works. Yeah. It's bugs. Yeah, it, it's just it's technological technological difficulties.
0: Which we don't have anymore because <laughs> we don't have technological problems, right? I'm sorry. I'm not, <laughs> not <laughs> gonna do <keep laughs> that. Thanks I, I should I should stop. <laughs> It's just that you, once you say something like that, we're done.
1: I know why, dude, I fully jinxed it. I mean, I have like, I, and, and basically I, I killed the internet for the whole house and (laughs) there's, I'm going to go need to offer bread
0: and wine. Yeah. You might have to. Wait, what did you say? I (laughs) I just agreed with it, but I didn't actually hear you. (laughs) I said,
1: I'm going to have to go offer bread and wine now. Oh, in mass um, in aton- yeah in atonement for my sin.
0: <laughs> Good. And I will give you a tenth of everything I have.
1: Oh, see there we go. Welcome to our first Welcome reading first from read- Genesis 14. All right,
0: Genesis 14. It's this reading about this mysterious weirdo guy named Melchizedek.
1: And this which dude I was talking with somebody and and they were they were speculating that there's potential that Melchizedek is um, uh, received the blessing from Noah that in fact uh, he's like one of the three sons of Noah, either Ham, Shem, or Japheth.
0: Well, it's not um, it's not mere speculation. I mean, the one of the oldest traditions, both of Christianity and Judaism, suggests that Melchizedek was Shem. And I think there's a lot of there's Dude. a lot of reasons for that. But the a lot of every early church father who was trained in Judaism um, that I can think of believed that it was Shem. And actually, there's all these Jewish writings, and it, was, it wasn't it was unanimous among ancient Judaism, but there's all these Jewish writings that just take for granted that, oh, obviously Melchizedek is Shem. It was kind of a, a really well-known and really well-established tradition that I personally believe. I, I think full, wholeheartedly that Melchizedek was Shem, because it actually makes a lot of sense. The, there's only three places in the entire Bible where this guy Melchizedek is mentioned. So he's mentioned here in, in Genesis 14. He's mentioned In Psalm 110, which is the psalm that we have today. And then he's mentioned later on in Hebrews chapter 7, which is kind of a little commentary um, in the New Testament on who Melchizedek was. But it's, it's interesting. So if, if you kind of take the, the setting, what's going on here, This um, in Genesis 14, what's just happened, so you're, you're getting the story of Abram. And Abram, remember, he was this guy. God called him to leave his homeland and leave his, leave his kin and his land and go to this land that he was going to show him as he traveled. And so this huge act of trust and of faith. So Abraham starts moving. He's got this um, nephew named Lot that's causing all kinds of trouble for him. Lot eventually chooses this plot of land um, over in the, the region he Did he get a good lot? Ah, I was going to say he's a lot of trouble.
1: Ah. Oh, dude. The, with a name like Lot, seriously, a lot is going to happen. There's to a you. lot
0: of potential for pun. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway. So uh, there's Lot and he's living on his land and a war breaks out between, I forget how Genesis says it, I think it, it was seven kings who were waging war against five kings or something like that. So this basically World War One breaks out in uh, what will now be the Holy Land and Lot gets caught right in the crossfires and he's caught in the middle and he's taken captive. So Abram has to deal with this and he has to get Lot out of trouble. So Abraham takes up which is obviously a sizable group of people that he must have with him in his party and his household because they gather a little army together and they wage their own war against all of these kings who are warring against all the other kings. And he basically wins the First World War and he defeats everybody. And it's, <laughs> kinda, it's if you think about it, 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 you know we read past this because we're like, oh, it's Bible times and weird stuff happens. But it's kind of weird. Abraham wins this huge battle against all these kings in the world and as soon as he does this, so if Abraham, if Abram, his name hasn't changed to Abraham yet, but if Abram has just defeated all these kings who were fighting against all these other kings, then what would that make Abram? The king of the world. Yeah, the king of the world, the king of the kings, right? But what happens? As soon as he wins yeah. this battle against all these kings, he, uh, this guy named Melchizedek, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek, who was called King of Salem, comes out, and Abram offers him a tenth of everything. He gives him a tithe, basically. Um, In the book of Hebrews, when you get kind of the commentary on this story, Hebrews makes it clear, and we all know this, Mm -hmm. a tithe, you know, before it it had religious connotations. We talk about tithing and mass and stuff. But before it had religious connotations, it's something that you would do to a king. It was like paying a tax to a king who was in authority over you to kind of guarantee that king's protection. So you would give them a tithe. And Hebrews makes it clear you would only tithe to someone who is greater than you are. So, Abram, after he's defeated all the kings of the world, gives a tithe, a tribute, to this other king, which means somehow Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, is bigger and more powerful and somehow higher up than Abraham, even though Abraham just defeated all these kings. So, he's bigger. Now, think about this we know that the word Melchizedek is actually not a name. And we know that because if you know Hebrew, but also if you don't know Hebrew, the book of Hebrews kind of gives you an insight. Um the word Melchizedek means yeah. literally king of righteousness. Melchi uh means king Hold on, it's so so
1: you're trying to tell me that this Melchizedek's name is not actually Melchizedek's name? I am trying to tell you that. Because the word literally Dude, means this king. is absurd. I've never heard I've never heard anything so radical. Have you not? Are
0: not. you being sarcastic? Really you really haven't? No, I really haven't. I mean, like, I,
1: I, I was always confused because they said, well, this dude's, like, name is, uh, I, they, this guy is Shem, but he's actually Melchizedek. I was like, either somebody's schizophrenic <laughs> right. or he had some sort of weird mission change right. or, like.
0: No, here's how it makes sense. So the word Zedek, Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And Melchi uh, yeah. is, is a conjugation of king. So, so literally Melchizedek means the king of righteousness, which is a pretty pretentious name to give your kid if you're just naming <laughs> kids. This is the little <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a title. And, it, you know, we know that kings will often take on, well, think of our popes for Pete's sake. So, you know, Joseph Ratzinger was the given name that his parents gave him, but then he took on the, the, the title Benedict XVI, and John Paul II, you know, was Carol Wojtyla. And, you know, so so we have kind of this tradition of, of people in great authority taking on names. And kings would do that, too. They'd take a yeah. throne name. So Melchizedek, we already know that's not a name. It means king of righteousness. Um, the only other... So if, if you know the whole story of Genesis and this running theme of the firstborn sons who are supposed to be kind of the heads of the family, there's only one firstborn son in this whole history of a bunch of lousy firstborn sons. There's only one firstborn son who is called Righteous. Do you know who it is?
1: No, I, I have no idea. Maybe, I mean, no, no, I don't. I'll take an educated guess. I was going to say David, but I, I don't think that's well, right. Well, way
0: prior to that, it was Shem. Shem was the only firstborn ah. son who was called a righteous son. And now all of a sudden you got this guy named King oh. of Righteousness. If you do the math based on how long Genesis says people were living, Shem could have... Uh, Um, could have been alive by this point and if this Melchizedek figure is king over everybody I mean think about this Noah after the flood Noah and his family are the only people left Noah passes his son passes his blessing as the father of all of humanity onto his firstborn son Shem which means Shem because there's nobody else on earth at the time except for his dad is the king of the earth It's the king of everybody so there's nobody more powerful than Shem And that means if Abram has just defeated all these kings, there's still somebody greater than that, which would be Shem. And again, if this is a title, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, again, these things all kind of make sense. The other interesting thing, one of the themes of the book of Genesis, at least the beginning part, is the passing on of the blessing. Everyone's concerned about who's getting the blessing from whom. The last time...
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the the whole of scriptures. I mean, really, when we're looking at it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And the last time you see the blessing mentioned in the book of Genesis is when Noah gives it to Shem. And then there's actually silence on it mm. for a while until you have this guy Melchizedek mysteriously giving a blessing to Abram. So there's a lot of reason to believe that this, this could be the case. Why does this all matter? Well, it matters once you get to, to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrew, what Hebrews is doing is saying Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek, and what Hebrews is doing is setting up this dichotomy, or a paradox, between um, the, the priesthood of the Levites, who were the priests of Jesus' time, and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is saying is something else. If Melchizedek really is Shem, the other thing that's interesting about Melchizedek, what we know is that he's both a king and a priest because he brings out this offering he makes a priestly sacrifice he's called a priest so he's a priest king you know later on you either have priests or you have kings but in the beginning there were priest kings there was a combination of both and how did you become a priest well actually let me ask you how how did you become a priest in the old testament Uh, originally in the very beginning of genesis how were priests made do you remember you had to be before the levites uh, i mean the the priest for all that
1: Yeah, yeah, you would be the oldest son. Every household had its own priest. Exactly.
0: Firstborn son was the priest. This priest happens to be a king. So Hebrews is trying to lay this argument for why Jesus is a better, a greater priest than what we've seen. And it says, well, he's not a priest like the Levites. He's a priest like Melchizedek, who is a priest not because he has this genealogy that you can trace back, well, my father was a Levite and his father was a Levite and my mother was a Levite and her, father, her mother, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's a priest simply because he is a firstborn son. And he's the firstborn son, the only begotten son of the Father. That's why he's like Melchizedek, not like the Levites. There's this weird line in Hebrews that, that really flips people out that says, Jesus is like Melchizedek, because he has neither father nor mother nor genealogy, which is Hebrew, this is in Hebrews 7, which has led many people to think, oh, yeah. Melchizedek, he's this mysterious kind of, an, you know, this, this ghost figure, or this mysterious angel figure, something like that, which he's a weird, yeah. mysterious figure. But if the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is like him because Melchizedek didn't have father or mother or genealogy, is that a good comparison of Jesus? Did Jesus have a father, or a mother, or a genealogy?
1: no and no he didn't and that's well, no, why he did. makes it actually a great comparison how does comparison. Matthew begin
0: how does the gospel of Matthew begin
1: oh well oh now I feel dumb no, don't of feel course, dumb of course he has a genealogy this is what yeah. really
0: flips people out though because Hebrews says this thing and they're like oh well yeah obviously but then you're like well wait a second though Matthew made a huge stink about Jesus' genealogy and he certainly has a mother he has a foster father Joseph he has God the father so it's just on any level it's a bad comparison oh Jesus is like Melchizedek because he has no genealogy no that's not true he, ha- he actually, I mean, God became man. He really does have a genealogy. That's all true. He's more than that, but that's still a reality. Um, if you're reading that in Hebrew, though, uh, or in... What? Yeah, that's a... Te- it, the line in Hebrew 7 is a technical term. Being without father or mother genealogy is a technical term taken from the law, um, the law that grew up around the priesthood that said to be a Levitical priest, you had to have a certain kind of genealogy on your father's and mother's side. So after the Babylonian exile, the law said you had to, I think, be able to produce paperwork that showed your father was a full-blooded Levite ten generations back, and your mother was a full-blooded Levite like seven generations back, and you had to produce paperwork, and that was the way that you became a priest, and that's what it meant to have father and mother in genealogy, and Hebrews says Jesus doesn't have that, neither did Melchizedek, Ah. which was why he's a superior priest. And
1: that's w- yeah, and 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 the, but he's also the firstborn he's son, the and firstborn so you son. actually see that there's, exactly. you're having this kind of return to this this the the the, the purpose of the original priesthood yes. was to actually point then toward the only begotten firstborn son
0: exactly exactly, and that that's the idea, and so there's all these similarities. I mean Melchizedek, he's a he's a priest and a king. He's a firstborn son, presumably, um, and then this other really mysterious thing. If he's a priest. He is a priest who, for some reason, this is, I think this is inexplicable outside of divine providence, but he inexplicably brings out bread and wine as his priestly sacrifice, which, as far as anybody knows, any records have, nobody nobody really did that. They brought out animals, and they brought out, you know, grain offerings sometimes. But it's kind of weird that he does this, unless you see that his whole job kind of is to prefigure Jesus.
1: well and it is i mean like it's and and it's it's cool and i mean i don't i don't quite understand it fully i mean and in light of the eucharist it's it's understandable but i think that's i don't get his motivation for it yeah is is that is that he's that's his task is you know he's like oh i know i'll give him bread and (laughs) wine and you're like cool yeah, it's I mean or he could be like the contemporary folk band and give him Iron and Wine, but <laughs> Precisely, that, very good.
0: Nice. I like Iron yeah, and yeah, Wine. Yeah, yeah, but
1: wine. he decided not to do that. I do too. I think that they got they got a really good melancholic thing happening.
0: You know, one last thing on this Genesis line. So, speaking of the bread and wine, you know, here in the in the verse 18 it says in those days Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine. And then the translation that we're going to have in the mass says, and being a priest of God most high, he blessed Abraham with these words. That's actually not what it says in Hebrew, though. It's it's grammatically a little bit different. In the Hebrew, there's a, a nuance. What it says is, in those days, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine because he was a priest of God most high. And then it says he blessed mm. him, which it it sounds like a small difference, but in the Hebrew it's actually saying he's bringing out bread and wine because he's a priest it's not kind of the side note oh he brought out bread and wine oh by the way he was a priest and you know all these other things too that is his priestly identity is bringing out bread and wine which is it's really significant for our purposes I think
1: yeah and, and and it gives you an insight into why he would be brought up in this beautiful prefigurement on Corpus exactly. Christi exactly
0: twice because then in the response to yeah. psalm he shows up again
1: and 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 it, it's Psalm one ten is really interesting because it's it has, I mean, such a direct reference to Jesus. It does. I mean, it's it's just all about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right and you're like Lord to Lord, like, okay, hold on, what's that? It's got this Trinitarian revelation and then the the scepter of the Lord will stretch forth from Zion. So you have this kind of like cosmological imagery of the Lion of Judah mm-hmm. um, from Zion. And and then you have all, all that kind of beautiful cosmology. And, uh, and, the, cause you, and, and then it goes into the day star and I've begotten you. And you're like, this is awesome. And then you're a priest forever according to the Melchizedek, order of Melchizedek, which is super cool.
0: Well, you know what's even more cool about that um, that beginning part of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I will make your enemies your footstool. There, there's that language appears in a couple other Psalms. And it's believed that that uh-huh. language is actually, excuse me, those are the words that, um, well, I forget who we believe it was, but there's speculation that those are the words that's a Psalm actually written to from David on behalf of his son Solomon on his ordinate on his, his ordination as king, his coronation rather. Oh, So the Lord, God, said to my Lord, in other words, the king, you, my son, sit at my right hand because you are now king. And the reason I think that's so cool. So this I think this is actually a coronation psalm. This is psalms that they would have been reading at the coronation of kings. And it mysteriously ties it back in with this priestly line of Melchizedek. Again, kind of foreshadowing, looking backwards, but also looking forward to this, this mysterious connection between the priesthood and the kingship
1: wow that's awesome and then it also actually brings into the mysterious connection between david mm-hmm. and jesus exactly. even there and then and then ties that into this melchizedek reality <laughs> which is very very primal that's that's really profound it's
0: super super cool yeah it's a there's so well, much in that well song. done
1: on the mimesis what yeah we must keep moving move move we will Move, move out of the way because we have First Corinthians. Yes, we do. <laughs> Sorry, I just snorted <laughs> into, the, into
0: the microphone.
1: Well, y- you know what's you know, interesting is this this passage from 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those ones where it's really um, helpful to talk with um, people who don't believe in the Eucharist and the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Yeah. This is a really helpful scripture passage to be like, you know what? This is um pretty. Uh, this is pretty real um, as far as early church goes, and and the the nature of of what the Eucharist is, even in these early scripturally scriptural writing days. Absolutely. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty. Ex- it's, it's hard to get around this. It's pretty explicit. On the day that he was given, when he was handed over, he took bread and he gave thanks, broke, and said, "This is my body that is for you. Do it in remembrance of me." I mean, this is what Paul is quoting. Jesus is saying this is my blood well this well what's really
1: important is the the notion of remembrance um mm. which it comes from the the from the hebrew which is zakar mm. which which is to actually uh, to to relive it, it's it's way stronger than like hey I re- remember when we were in high right. school and we did that one fun thing it was awesome right. like no it's that, that's a really poor understanding of what remembrance is. Remembrance is this notion that we are actually entering into yeah the reality of that moment and and we get that from passover passover is kind of like um in judaism is this super strong experience of zakar we are we're actually going into that moment because it's so profound it's eternal and so when he says do this in remembrance of me um we have it in memoriam in latin is the technical term and anamnesis in greek uh, do that amnesis exactly, and so the, it, it's saying, you no, know, you're entering into this reality, and so, so it's it's not just a uh, uh, soft, yeah. it's it's really strong.
0: Yeah, you're actually there. You're That's going the to that
1: meal. Yeah, which is crazy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's cool. This
1: I have is crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> this
0: is this is crazy. Wait, what is that from?
1: <laughs> sorry. You know, you have to get a little cheese in there when you're talking about the eucharist <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> somebody's gonna somebody's gonna fireball my house for saying that for I'm saying sorry. what sorry if that was offensive for saying that for make, making a vacation reference in the middle of oh, talking yeah, about the most I, sublime realities yeah, in that. the world yeah
0: at least i couldn't i'm remember sorry the reference but.
1: oh yeah i'm on i'm on vacation so this is where <laughs> my mind is nice
0: <laughs> so you know the other thing that's yeah. i think kind of cool about this so again in first corinthians where he's recall paul is recalling Jesus' like, you know, big-time priestly sacrifice. Well, he sacrifices himself, ultimately. But prior to that, you know he gives himself in the Eucharist in this, in this priestly moment. And if you're kind of following the, the trajectory of where these things are going, and I mean, you have this priest in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who is prefiguring Jesus because he's bringing out bread and wine and that is his sacrifice, and it's beautiful. Then you have the psalm reminding us about it, and then they're like, oh, by the way, the bread and wine that Jesus brought out, it's actually his body. And you're like, wait a second, that just took a step <laughs> further than anybody was expecting that to take. Okay, I see the connection here, but wait, that's actually his body? And so, you know, if you're following the logic of this, it just took this huge, light leap forward. And I just think, I just mm. think it's fascinating.
1: It is. Yeah, he's like Melchizedek
0: because he offers bread and wine, but Melchizedek didn't give himself in the form of bread and wine. It's just, It just comes kind no. of this totally unexpected angle. And you're like, all right. He, he, just brings it all the really? way, uh, alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, literally.
1: <laughs> and uh, mm. Mm, I didn't even mean to I say that, that but did. I feel very cool that I did. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because we end up in the in the gospel, which is a little bit um like w- um, it's not as explicit as you have like in John six, which we will have in year A or B or one of the right. two. Um, but in, it, we're in year C, and so this is kind of a little bit more uh, obscure, obscure enunciation of what the Eucharist well, we is and, and how it works. It, you do, because um, because I like I like I when I look at the the five loaves and two fish, I have some, I kind of have some standard ways in which I think about this particular passage, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily Eucharistic that I that I come off at first.
0: Well, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's not primarily Eucharistic, but it's foreshadowing, because what. The language yes. that he uses is the same. The language that, that Luke writes us in is the same language Jesus is going to use in the Last Supper. Mark is even more explicit. The very words that Jesus says in Mark in this same scene are going to be identical to the mm-hmm. words of the Last Supper as far as taking the taking the bread and fishes and giving them and taking to eat and all this stuff. It actually is kind of cool. There's, there's, I think, a really neat line here because it is a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, but I think even, even more... Profound. Well, no not more profoundly, but in another way, it's a it's a foreshadowing of the priesthood specifically, who is going to be the ministers of the Eucharist, because lo- look at what happens mm. here. This is kind of cool. So the uh, you know they they come up and they they want to dismiss the crowd so they can go find food, and Jesus said. So he, he the, the disciples are like, oh, let's everybody go. Let's let everybody go and and get some food in the villages and towns. We're in this deserted place, and Jesus said to them, give them some food yourselves. Which is interesting because—well, here's why it's interesting. And they replied, five loaves and two fish are all we have unless we ourselves go— you know, we can't go buy food for everybody. And there were 5,000 people, just the men. And Jesus has them sit down, right? And then he takes the loaves and two fish. He looks up to heaven. He says the blessing over them, broke them, gave them to the disciples. Uh, again, the exact language of the Eucharist later on in the Last Supper. And then—but here—okay, here, let me get to the point. Here's what's interesting about it. Jesus says, you give them some food yourselves. Does Jesus ever actually give these people loaves and fish to eat?
1: No, he uses the ministers to do it. Well, and some people would say, if they're really cynical, that the people who are sitting around they actually just had extra food in their yeah, in their bologna. garments, and then th- and then they just they just brought it yeah, out. Yeah, which is a
0: baloney explanation. I think I've heard that explanation many times. But in most of the gospel accounts, as soon as this happens, everyone wants to make Jesus king because he performed a miracle. And I I don't really hear exactly. about people wanting to make people king for encouraging them to share. He made us share. We should, <laughs> we should put him on the throne over our nation. <laughs> That's just silly. But
1: but rather he this is actually uh, one of those things that I look at as a minister myself of the Eucharist and like the the profound excitement of the ministers mm-hmm. of them kind of receiving more bread as they they like bring, they keep coming back to Jesus and they like and he's like here's some more yeah. like and you're like where is this all coming from but then they're going out and like and like the first time that they're coming back to get more bread from after g- giving it to the people in the first rows you know that they're kind of freaking no,
0: totally, out totally okay Jesus. they're like oh
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh man, what's he doing? And then by the time, I mean, the fevered pitch when they can just actually keep giving more and more, f- more from it is awesome. Yeah, and
0: you know that moment you kind of reach your stride and something, and they're going back and they're getting more, and then they're going back and they're running back and forth. I mean, that just must have been such a cool moment to witness. It's crazy. Well, and
1: I, well, this is the thing: is I would love to be there, but I, what I also love is the symbolic nature of the five loaves and two fish. Yeah,
0: what do you think about that? I, I, I can never quite get anything that i see is you know what what do you think well
1: i think that i mean when when you got when you have five loaves as soon as you see as soon as you see five what happens is that um uh, my mind goes to the torah the five books of the torah of the law and then the two fish which is the psalms and prophets
0: oh that's a cool and that's a cool connection and
1: so that when, the, when the, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets are brought to Jesus and touched, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you can give all of the Psalms and the prophets touched by Christ and everything becomes intelligible. And then it's nourishing mm-hmm. in, a, in a fathomless, unending way, which reestablishes Israel in this. I- it becomes the new Israel because you have 12 b- wicker baskets left over. Oh, wow. it's, the, it's the foundation stone.
0: That's really cool. I like that. Is that the, is awesome.
1: is that er, er, yeah? Isn't that cool? And like I I've heard a couple of different interpretations and um, but that that's the one that kind of rocks me the most because that's that's kind of what we do here. I mean, it's not like we could ever we could we could keep talking about the scriptures, the same passage over and over and yeah. over again, and not hit its and not hit its yeah. depth. Yep, that's true. That's really cool. It's it's actually it's kind of like going out on the ocean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice segue
1: <laughs> you like that how, you know this is how i'd roll men
0: <laughs> that's cool
1: <laughs> is, is it it just it, it just keeps going it's unending in its in its ability to have good things flow from it and the eucharist and the scriptures and um and yeah i just i just love it and and i love i mean like the fact is is that we're like we're catholic and we have been entrusted with the greatest mystery on earth. The greatest mystery that exists, which is that how can God give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? And and how could we be worthy to even encounter that? And um, you look at all of these different cultures and the relationship even with blood and, and the blood of animals and in the blood of humans. And what does that look like in human sacrifice? And like we've been entrusted with it. And it's like to celebrate it over this weekend is just, it's just important to remember that this is something like so needing to be celebrated.
0: Absolutely. One other thing I just think is cool about this. And maybe this is, maybe this is cool to you. Maybe it's not, but so I was reading through this and it's hard to kind of nail down exactly when the miracle takes place, right? Isn't it? So I mean, he bring they bring the loaves and fish. He looks up to heaven. He blesses it. He broke it, and then he kind of gives it to the disciples. But when is it actually multiplied? Is it multiply Do they just keep coming? Is it multiplied? What 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 actually happened? And I love, I love that you can't quite nail it down, you know, which is the same nature of yeah. the mass. I mean, I, I remember when I was first kind of rediscovering my Catholic faith and trying to. You know, I was taking classes in a, as an undergrad, and we were all curious. You know, I was curious when is the when is the exact moment in the mass when the bread is no longer bread, and now it's the body and blood of Christ. And I love that the church really doesn't have an answer for that. It's like it's somewhere between this and this. You know, it's somewhere kind of in this yeah. range. We don't exactly when, because it's it, you can't just yeah. nail him down. Which is the same thing kind of happening here. There's not like, th- it's not this magical that's formula I'll where like, okay, if I just say this in the right way, then boom, alakazam. It's this, it's this, y- you just can't put it in a box. I like, I like that.
1: I like that too. I mean, it's, it's like, does it happen at the epiclesis or the consecration? That's why it's so important for us priests to be obedient in the mass yeah. itself, not to just say like, oh, that's not totally essential, right. but to just say... No, I'm gonna be faithful to this entire mystery because it remains mystery. I can't just define and say this is exactly when consecration when when the the elements are utterly transformed. It's like it could be at the other place. it could be at the consecration, it could be at the such that I just don't even know.
0: Yeah, it's cool. and so I submit so cool. so, so myself to it. So you have to be you have to be conscious, you have to be aware at all times. It's like Jesus says in Mark, keep watch, always. You never know. <laughs> You never know. We'll keep watch while we're
1: out there. Send us your shoutouts. We're you guys, at thomascenter.org.
0: Have a great Corpus Christi, and thanks for listening. We will see you next week.
1: We will see you next week. God bless you. Bye. Mm -hmm. I'm from the Florida man from my garage (laughs) and the garage. Okay, bye. (laughs) Bye.
0: (laughs) The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.